Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. This is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Patti Smith needed only one unforgettable opening line to establish her debut album as one of the touchstone records of her generation. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. In honor of its 40th anniversary, we'll do a classic album dissection of Patti Smith's Horses. Then we'll review the new solo album, from former Clips rapper Pusha T. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, Jim, and later on in the show we're going to review this new Pusha T album. I'm very excited about this record because uh, I loved Clips, the original group that Pusha T was in with his brother Malice. And then they dropped off the map after three great records, major label problems. Now Pusha T is back with his own stuff, and frankly, I think he's one of the great MCs of our generation. Well, that's later in the show, Greg. But first, we've got some music news. Okay, so this is an idea called I Wish You Would. It's 2 a.m. in your car. Windows down, past my street, memories start. You say it's in the past. You drive straight ahead. You're thinking that I hate you now Cause you still don't know what I never said I wish you would come back Wish I never hung up the phone like I did I Wish you knew that I'd never forget you as long as I live I Wish you were right here, right now It's all good, I wish you would That is a little bit of Taylor Swift singing a track called I Wish You Would, parentheses, voice memo It's a bonus track, Greg, mm-hmm. on 1989 I know it's one of your favorites Taylor apparently had an inspiration for a song As so many musicians do, she reached into her pocket, pulled out the iPhone, and used the Voice Memo app. And uh, many musicians use it as a quick way to record an inspiration for a riff, a lyric, hum a little bit of a song, right? Apple is introducing a new app that's now called Music Memo that recognizes that and adds some more musician-friendly abilities. For one thing, if you record something into it, it's not compressed, so it sounds a little better. You have the ability to add a drum loop or an easy bass line. Also, it's a lot easier to share with people. So if I want to send you, if you and I are in a band, which I can't ever get you to join, uh, I could send you, you know, you know, something and, and you can add your piece to it. It's interesting that Apple is progressing on the social front because that's where Spotify has been lagging behind. It's way in front in terms of presenting the music on a streaming level, 75 million users. So it's got a big lead on that front. But it is pretty far behind when it comes to the social and interactive aspects of creating a music community. So it just made two acquisitions that is attempting to rectify that. They recently acquired both Soundwave 
and Cord Project, two companies that have a social networking aspect. Soundwave, a social network for music lovers, Cord Project, and Audio First messaging app. The whole idea is, you know, you could be listening to a song on Spotify and talking to somebody across the world who is listening to the same song at that moment with this particular technology. So the idea is that you're no longer just using Spotify to play music in the background, but you're actually interacting with it and the other Spotify users on the network. And of course, they can create paywalls and build advertising around these options now. So Spotify moving into Apple territory a little bit here with this interactive component. Well, everybody wants the killer app, but you really haven't made it until Taylor Swift put you in a song. If you want to comb your cat, there's an app for that. If you have to fix a flat, there's an app for that. Need a word that rhymes with that? Or a place to hang your hat? Got a chimp who likes to chat. There's an app, there's an app, there's an app for that. You're listening to Sound Opinions. Before I could sleep Find a ticket Win a lottery Scoop the pearls Up from the sea Cash them in and buy you All the things You need you're listening to Sound Opinions, and Greg and I are excited to bring you a show that we uh, call a classic album dissection. Right, Greg? You know, every once in a while we get to play rock professor and dig deep, give a lesson, if you will, uh, or a dissection of an album that we admire hugely, that played an important part in rock history, that broke ground, that paved the way for other artists. For all that we admire this artist, uh, this particular classic album dissection is long, long overdue. Yeah, about 40 years overdue, Jim. (laughs) Horses by Patti Smith came out in 1975, December of 1975 to be precise. And ever since then, it's been lauded as one of the most influential records of its time. I mean, you talk to artists like Bono or Michael Stipe or members of The Clash, they all reference this record as being one of the statement records of that era. A lot of people call it one of the first major records to emerge from the New York City punk rock movement of the 70s. It may not be a pure punk rock record per se, but it certainly set the agenda for a lot of the music to follow in the next few decades. That's how important Horses is and remains to this day. We're talking about an artist here, Jim, that you and I have both interviewed a number of times. Uh, not, not an easy interview. Not an easy interview, but she, she's a smart, smart woman, a well-read woman, and this was her first major statement as a recording artist. I think, Greg, we have to understand, uh, people need to understand about Patti Smith in the early 70s, that she was a writer first and foremost. And the world of rock writing and the world of literature were kind of closer together. Mm-hmm. All right? Patti was writing rock criticism for Cream Magazine, being published by Dave Marsh and Lester Banks. So was Lenny Kay, writing for a lot of different magazines. He was going to become the Patti Smith guitarist. He starts out backing her just as a duo. She's reading her poems, right? Right. I drove my car on, Mom. 
It wasn't long after when Patty starting out like that that she had lived with Robert Maplethorpe, soon to become probably the key photographer of his generation. I think we should start with the cover, which seems like a very strange thing for two music critics to say, right? But this is a photo image on the cover of Horses of Patty Smith looking rather androgynous at a time when girls were girls and boys were boys. And you can't quite even tell what Patty is. She's wearing a man's dress shirt. There's an unmade tie. There's a jacket over her shoulder, mm-hmm. which, if you notice, has a very small pin of a horse on right. it, hence the title. And the photo was taken by Mablethorpe. Patty later wrote a memoir about her relationship with Robert Mablethorpe called Just Kids, which got a lot of attention and it won a National Book Award. In the book, she describes the horse's photo session and was done entirely with natural light. He took a few shots. He said, you know, I really like the whiteness of your shirt. Can you take the jacket off? I flung my jacket over my shoulder, Frank Sinatra style. I was full of references. He was full of light and shadow. He took a few more shots. I got it. How do you know? I just know. Why is it important for the image? Because I think, and I don't know if you'll bear with me through our our classic album dissection here and agree with this, but I think Patti Smith's biggest creation throughout her entire career has been Patti Smith. (laughs) You know, she is a great lover of mythology, and she created a character, literary character, a rock and roll character, but a character for the ages. She, You're absolutely right. She was very deliberate in some ways, I think, by the way she looked, the way she dressed, the way she looked at that camera. And, you know, I'll flat out admit I bought that record because of that album cover. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't. I heard not a note of that music. It was that album cover that drew me, and I was looking for something different. And I, when I looked at that cover, it both beguiled me and scared me a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's like, man, she's she's looking right through me. And you know, I asked her later on about the cover. What do you think it projects? She says, confidence. I wanted to project something. Confidence. There's some of those French symbolist poets in there. Some of the photographs taken of them, she was attempting to emulate in the way she dressed. And Maplethorpe, you know, understood her very well. He only took twelve snaps in that apartment overlooking Fifth Avenue in New York City, and you have this image that really encapsulates everything. You, you know, I think the androgyny is a very important part. Of the record, you know, the way she, yeah. the fluidity of sexual roles. In well, the, she's singing in sometimes record. from a male perspective. She's playing a boy in certain songs and other points. She's very much a female, you know, a, a woman, a, 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 a self-empowered woman. She is a woman who at that point, you know, knew she wanted to make art, had a burning desire to make art. I think you have to start with the single that preceded it, her first burst of rock and roll. She had published in various guises, you know, underground press poetry kind of publishing. And then also, you know, these great pieces of rock criticism. Mm -hmm. There's that classic piece where she talks about the sexual power of the Rolling Stones for Cream magazine. But she wants to make her mark on the world. This is the era where everybody creates, she will later tell us. This is the birth of the DIY aesthetic. She is working, putting toys together at a horrible factory job in New Jersey. She will write a song 
first a poem, then it's like called Piss Factory. Mm-hmm. And she and Mablethorpe will raise the money for her to put it out herself. No, you gotta, you gotta relate, right? You gotta find the rhythm within. Floorboard slides up to me and he says, Hey, sister, you're just moving too fast. You're screwing up the quota. You're doing your piecework too fast. Now you get off your Mustang, Sally. You ain't going nowhere. You ain't going nowhere. That was the first single that came out in 74 when she was basically, it was just her and Lenny Kay right. uh, working together. The merger of the word with rock and roll, you know, the, the written word, poetry, literature, blending those worlds. It wasn't a new idea. I mean, Lou Reed, people like that got there first, but she took it to the next level. She felt like, okay, the people that I grew up with, the people that inspired me, they're leaving us or doing work that is less satisfying. You know, this whole notion of I was getting frustrated with writing. It wasn't physical enough. Right. I needed I needed a little bit of that in my life. And, and the, the whole idea, this other great quote uh, that she gave. We imagined ourselves as the sons of liberty with a mission to preserve, protect, and project the revolutionary spirit of rock and roll. I mean, that is so <laughs> Patti Smith. But she was on a mission. And she goes into that studio, and there, and there was all sorts of, like, layers to it. You know, you go into electric lady studios in right. New York City and you're recording in the same place that Hendrix recorded mm-hmm. in, you know, her big idol. And they record the single, as you said, Piss Factory and Hey Joe. Hey Joe was actually the A-side, the Hendrix song that he covered, the great folk song, yeah. and Hendrixized it. She took that as a launching pad, like, okay, Lenny, let's play some of this noise guitar. When, when she first played with Lenny in a church, her only instruction to Lenny accompanying her poetry was, can you make it sound like a car crash? <laughs> yeah. You know? And, and he could. Because and, Lenny yeah. Kay was not, at that point, a technically proficient guitarist. No. You know, the big thing about punk was you don't have to know how to play. All right? Now, there were some great players, to be sure. She was very close friends with Tom Verlaine, and he will make a cameo appearance mm-hmm. on Horses. Verlaine is a virtuoso, always was, right? Right. But, you know, Kay was a self-taught guitarist. So there was what I said before about this overlap with rock criticism. I think with key writers like Richard Meltzer, uh, Nick Tosh's, Lester Bangs, they saw what Patti Smith and Lenny Kay did. Hey, they're us. They're Mm -hmm. writers, right? Right. It's like all of a sudden you decide you're going to be a poet, you Greg Cott, and make this incredible record, right? And you're going to shift gears. I wonder what that's going to be like. All Mm -hmm. right, all right. But they're one of us, right? But the rock critics wind up loving it. I think that's a key thing. Lester Banks compares her on this album uh, to nothing less than his all-time favorite, Charles Mingus, and Miles (laughs) Davis, and Dylan of Sad-Eyed Lady in that Royal Albert Hall concert. Right. Um, so Patty got this huge boost from that. But I also think it's important to remember she was already out of step with punk, right? Right. In the terms of she was an old school, capital R, romantic, mm-hmm. all right? Her heroes, her other heroes, besides Hendrix, besides Jim Morrison, were Arthur Rambeau, were Baudelaire, were the beat poets. Right. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, 
starving, hysterical, naked. There's a little scoffing going on, right? Because this is kind of pretentious, right? These are names we mm-hmm. dealt with in sophomore English class. Right, we don't right. want to think about it anymore. You certainly don't want to think about it in the milieu of CBGB. You know, Ramones are up there, and they're singing, Now I Want to Sniff Some Glue. Right. And who's this lady that's referencing <laughs> Rambo? Now I Well, it's interesting that she sort of zeroed in on television as kind of kindred spirits, you know, a band with Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine in it in its earliest incarnation. And that was the band she sort of gravitated to. And in Verlaine, she she found a kindred spirit. In well, terms yeah, of the, the name he adopted yes, is right there. Yeah. Right away, you right. knew, okay, hey, you like French symbolists? I like French I symbolists. Like, oh, yeah. match made there in heaven. Yeah. My little Johnny Jew. Oh, he's so cool. No decision. He's just trying to tell a vision. Oh, some thought this was sad. We're talking circa 74 in New York City. Piece by piece, she and Lenny Kay start putting a band together. It becomes the Patti Smith group. And I think it's interesting that she often billed herself that way. It wasn't just Patti Smith. It was the Patti Smith group. They start playing residencies in New York City, and they attract a lot of attention. People like Bob Dylan start showing up at the shows because they realize something's happening here that's pretty interesting. She signs a pretty major record deal with Clive Davis of Arista Records. uh, Clive Davis, the man who will bring us Whitney Houston, (laughs) signed Patti. Smith. And she was certainly not doing conventional music at that point. But there know? was a buzz in the air. And the final piece to this record, Jim, as you well know, uh, John Cale is tapped as the producer. And you talked to both of them over the years, and they were basically saying there wasn't a single thing we could talk about that we didn't argue about during the right. entire recording session. These are two extremely strong, opinionated personalities. But that's the last piece of the puzzle. Having John Cale's name on here says, Mm -hmm. this is the next, this is the new, and this is capital A, art. We'll dive deep into what John Cale and Patti Smith accomplished in the recording studio when we continue our classic album dissection of Patti Smith's Horses. And later, we'll review the second solo album from Clips rapper Pusha T. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Jesus died for somebody's sins but not mine Milton pot thieves wild cord of my sleeve thick heart stone my sins my own they belong to me me Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's Gloria, the song that kicks off Patti Smith's 1975 debut album, Horses. Now, Horses recently celebrated its 40th anniversary, so we're giving it a classic album dissection. Jim, you and I were talking earlier. At this point, Smith was best known as a poet and music writer in New York City, doing readings of her work while backed by Lenny Kay on guitar and eventually Richard Soule on piano. And then she signed with Arista Records and went into Electric Lady Studios in New York with Velvet Underground founder John Cale as her producer. And there she would record that classic debut album, Horses. Now, as I've said, Glory was the first song on the album, and Jim, I'm going to go to my grave saying that the greatest first line on a first song on a first album ever is Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. It is hard to top that. <laughs> it is hard. <laughs> so here she is interpreting, reinterpreting, because the chords were, you know, Lenny K. Go, she goes, those are great chords. What are they? Well, they're this, from this song called Gloria that uh, Van Morrison wrote in, in, in the 60s with a band called Them out of Ireland. Huge garage rock hit. You know, Lenny Kay, like I said, was a rock critic, but also had been tapped to, like, compile the best one-hit wonders, three-chord garage rockers ever for a classic double album called Nuggets, right? right? So Lenny knew his garage rock. And, and you know, that line, the, the Jesus died for somebody's sins but not mine line, you know, I, you know, I asked Patty about that. And, and, you know, she grew up in a very religious household. Her parents were very devout believers. And it wasn't like she didn't believe. She, she thought Jesus was kind of cool. He says, only a rebel like Jesus, you know, what would be the ultimate rebellion to rebel against the rebel? You know, this is about taking responsibility for your own actions, you know, a declaration that I exist. And Mm -hmm. boy, you know, you come right out of the box saying that and then immediately going into the persona of a young man rather than a young woman. The gender fluidity is starting right from the top here on this song. She's basically laying out the rest of her career in some ways here. Here I am. Here's what I am. It's about total freedom as an artist. Okay. It's not about, you know, I'm, I'm making a statement here about gender fluidity. It's about, I can be anything I want to be on this record and it may scare you. It may offend you, but this is me. Yeah. And, and it's a perfect coupling of this thing that's supposed to be simple, simplistic, disposable rock and roll, three chords, them, Gloria, that it can mean more. It can mean a lot more. It can mean everything. It can mean salvation. It can mean self-invention. It's there from the beginning. You know, and we should insert here, Greg, Gloria in particular, every time I think about the song, I also think about Gilda Radner portraying (laughs) Candy Slice. Mm -hmm. You know, so perfect was Patti Smith in her presentation of herself with the picture by Maplethorpe and this song, it was instant fodder for parody.
But Gilda got everything wrong, hysterically funny. But she has Patti Smith as the like out of her head, completely out of touch, drugged out rocker. And Patti's drug of choice is mysticism. Yeah. All right. She is about transporting herself toward the white light with the power of poetry, man. Pretty straight edge. Aside from that, and also the excitement of the derangement of the senses. I think when when Gloria builds, and that's the thing that's exciting to me about the music on this record is that the way the band coalesced. It was a mixture of talents. I mean, Richard Soule on piano was actually a very fine piano player. I think Jay Lee Darty was a pretty darn good drummer. Jay Lee Darty, excellent drummer. Lenny yeah. Kay, like a you know, brilliant primitive. Brilliant primitive, exactly. And then the ecstasy you hear in her voice. I mean, to me, the great line on this song, besides the opening line, was the delirious ding dong ding. You know, you know, she's thinking about the ring of the bells as, yeah. as you know she's you know consummating this relationship with the woman she desired Well, what she learned from Dylan and from Lou Reed were you do not have to have a perfect technical voice. And Lord knows nobody would say Patti Smith does. If you imbue it with spirit, passion, and personality, every ounce (laughs) of personality you have. And, you know, she is an actress. All right. It has to be said, even from right there, you hear her playing a role in this song. She's playing different characters. And she'd seen people like Jim Morrison do that. And she's doing it herself. Right. Redondo Beach. What did you think of the reggae? I think it's a lame attempt at reggae. I love J.D. Darty. He's a great drummer, but boy, that is a white reggae song. <laughs> It's a fun song. It's a catchy song. If we went through the hooks on horses, there's probably only about a half dozen of them. Redondo Beach is one of them. It is an unsettling lyric for such a slight and goofy little uh, mm-hmm. yes, reggae it ditty. It has a basis in a real-life event. That she had an argument with one of her siblings, her sister Linda, and that spiraled out into this fantasy about finding the body washing onto the shore at this uh, California beach. Everyone was singing Girl is washed up down the beach And everyone is so sad There was all sorts of like, what, what was the relationship all about? You know, were they lovers? You know, what happened? And she said, it, you know, very simply, just a little moment in the life that I have with my sister sort of spiraled out into this poetic and very disturbing, as you said, moment on the record and at the same time coupled with this music that's very light (laughs) and bouncy and as you said one of the most accessible pop songs on the record. Uh, Robert Christgau when he reviewed the album in 75 the dean of American rock critics said you know this album is lousy with the apocalyptic (laughs) you know the world is going to end at any minute and and Patty 
had various faiths involved in her background, but one of them was Jehovah's Witnesses, which is interesting because so was Lester Bangs and so was David Thomas of Per Ubu, three of the greatest influences and formers of punk. Mm -hmm. You know, part of the faith was the world is going to end real right. and and very violently any minute mm-hmm. and there's an element of that that hangs all through even the goofy redondo beach oh yeah we go from redondo beach into birdland which one is of one the of the least two, accessible songs yeah, yeah two really long long tracks on this record his father died he left him a little farm in new england all the long black funeral cars left the scene and the boys just standing there alone Looking at the shiny red tractor Him and his daddy Used to sit inside and circle the blue fields and grease the night She and Kale had been arguing and she said this record to me is my favorite vocal performance because it was a catharsis and the song is sort of this building kind of piece based on the relationship between that psychoanalyst, William Reich. Yeah, Reichian and, therapy. Exactly. And then his son, Peter, his son wrote a memoir, and he had this dream where he was seeing his father come for him, his late father. He cast himself as an extraterrestrial being lifted up out of this world. The apocalyptic yeah. thing is very real here. You know, there's a moment in the song where Patty starts wailing, please take me up, please, please, pleading with this father figure coming down from the heavens and lifting her away from all this madness on the planet. And it's her way of saying, I want out of this relationship that I'm in now when making this record is not going well. Get me out of here. I'll give you my eyes, take me up. Oh, Lord, please take me up. I'm healing, raving, wait for you. Please take me up. Don't leave me here. The sun, the sun. It's kind of a mess, the track, musically. Later... Uh, on the second album on Radio Ethiopia, she would begin to give a justification, you know, going for this sort of Coltrane, free jazz, improvised spontaneity, linking it to the MC5, what they had done in Detroit uh, 1968. You know, she'd wind up married to uh, one of the guitarists of the MC5. But I think... Also, we could just say these are a bunch of boho artists making a lot of noise. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. This is one of the tracks I think doesn't. What Birdland, the famous New York jazz club, has to do with it in the title, I have no idea. Well, you know, I think the title of the song is from this vision that Peter Reich had of these UFOs, what he thought were and UFOs, and they, and they, they turned out to be a flock of birds. You know, I'm, so that... I'm bored by the track. <laughs> I'm just, I, you know, it may seem contradictory to say that one of the greatest albums of all time, certainly on my short list, has some tracks that are boring, but so brilliant are the others. Well, I'm listening to Patty's voice, and I think the lyrics and the voice are so central to the record. The voice is not pretty at all. She'd be the first to tell you I'm not in pitch on all of these songs, but Kale kind of let them wander and let them go for it in sort of an improvised live setting, which is one of the record's greatest assets and also a fault of the record. Which he had done for the Stooges. Mm -hmm. You know, the first Stooges album has some of this sort of free, just chaotic noise. All right, call me, uh, you know, pedestrian, but I get back on track with Free Money, the next song, which, which is a polar opposite. This is just a silly little punk rock song. This is probably the most punk moment on the whole album. Right. Every night 
I wish I had <laughs> as much money as you could imagine so I could buy you everything you want. This is uh, That's all this, it says. This is her singing from uh, her room in the Chelsea Hotel with Robert Maplethorpe, and they are two starving, literally two starving artists up there, like wondering where the next meal is coming from. And I think well, that's her, romanticizing like, it. You know, you, know, you know, there's a downside to the romantic mythologizing, right. right? Which is that a lot of these people wind up dead. Many of the people from the punk scene that they came up with, right down to Kurt Cobain, of whom she was a huge admirer of. I think some of the romantic imagery can get a little too heavy. But hey, none of that you have to worry about in free money, because it's just a catchy little tune that rocks. Yes, it is. A, it's a very catchy song. It's one of the high points of the record, one of the accessible points in the record. If you like, you're, you're trying to figure Patti Smith out, go right to that free go money to that track, song. and, and you'll song. hear something. Kimberly, the next song... Again, it's interesting how this record sort of flips around. You go from Free Money, which is this charging track. Kimberly is one of the prettiest tracks on the record. You know, it's kind of a minor track, but it's a nice little tribute to another of her siblings in this beautiful little ballad. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we're in the middle of our classic album dissection of Horses by Patti Smith, which just celebrated its 40th anniversary in December. Jim, after Kimberly, I think we get into a section of the record where the rock mythologizing starts to become the core it gets of cranked what's up, happening. Gets she, way cranked up. Yeah. The myth, you know, and the myths that she believes in and that she's trying to carry forward. She's Paul Revere, you know, ringing the bell saying, rock and roll is still alive. It can change your life. It changed mine. Now it can change yours. You start to hear a little bit of that coming in to break it up, which she has said has been written about Jim Morrison. And there's an interesting tale that she tells about the image in this song. Morrison had already become this martyr icon, and she felt like he was no longer alive in spirit either. He had become encased in marble. She had this dream of him being encased in marble. And this is like... We're freeing you from the marble. You know, yeah, the uh, icon is the icon is breaking out, out yeah, of here. Car stopped in a clearing. Ribbon of life, it was nearing. I saw the boy break out of his skin. My heart turned over and I crawled in. I got to say, I think Morrison is one of the most overrated <laughs> figures in all of rock history. I mean, this guy was a bad, flatulent poet. You know, we were being led to slaughters by placid admirals, and the fat, slow generals are getting obscene on young blood. You know, we are ruled by TV. You know, it's interesting that he's an influence to her because I think the contrast between what Lou Reed was doing on the East Coast and Morrison on the West Coast is pretty vast. I mean, there's a big yeah. chasm there. Yeah, and, and Lou Reed, very good poet. Right. Jim Morrison, not. And it's interesting that he was such an influence on her. I think uh, maybe the attempt was, in her mind, somewhat brave and worth emulating. But I think in terms of the actual execution, uh, you're right. Well, I, I think it was the self-invention. I think yeah. this Lizard King business and the leather pants and the the 
sexual ritual shamanism thing on stage. <laughs> it's hard, I think, if you've never seen Patti Smith to realize the impact of that stage show. Because even if you see her today, she's scary at times, she's seductive at times, she is never less than 100% intense. And then land on side two, again, nine minutes. Three parts, three uh, yeah. parts sweet. This is the punk era of, you know, 14 songs on a Ramones album, none of them more than two minutes. Right. And we've got this three, this is like a yes song. And that's why, uh, you know, I think in retrospect now, we can see this not so much as a punk record, but kind of her summing up of what meant the most to her about the music of the 60s. I mean, you know, Lenny Cave and said, I think we were probably had more in common with a late 60s, early 70s band like the MC5 than we did with, say, something like the Sex Pistols or the Ramones. There's a lot of risk on this record, and there's a lot of pretension, but at the same time, you go back to it now, and you listen to a track like Land, and again, I think I enjoy it more now than I did back in the day because I understand a little bit more what she was going for here. It's a disturbing track, but I, you know, the merger of the high and the low brow to me is fascinating. You know, she's pulling out... These dance uh, tracks that, you know, fascinated as a young girl. She used to love to dance, you know, the Boney Maroney and the Land of a Thousand Dances. Land of a Thousand Dances. There's a lot going on here that doesn't first meet the ear. Kale let her go nuts on the mixing board. They recorded several vocals for this track. Right, there's three. And they said, let's put them together. Kale allowed her, hands-on in the mixing board, to mix the track the way she saw fit. So you have this conversation going on mm-hmm. between these multiple voices of Patti Smith. And I think that's the triumph of this record, that you hear a mind that is working on three or four different levels at once and trying to put it all together. And how do you do that? Well, Kale goes... Here, I got the solution. Why don't you give this a shot? There's no land but the land. There's no just sea. But the sea. Of possibilities no up there. Of the key. There's a wall of one possibilities. Possibilities. One up there. Possibilities. There are several walls. Possibilities. Of possibilities oh, up there. Sees the first there possibility. Was the sea around me. I'm standing there with my legs spread like a sailor. I think Patty's, this is not a slight in any way. She is a very deep woman, but sometimes she just picks up lines and images that signify deepness without actually being any depth well, there. you know, and she's the one, she'll be the first one to say sometimes the meaning isn't readily apparent. Uh, she used to call those poetic raps babalogs sometimes, right, you know, so right. there, there you go, you know. Well, and you know, as Patty has gotten older in her career, the sense of humor has gotten less, but there also was very much a smile on her and Lenny's faces in the day as a duo on this album, mm-hmm. on stage, right? It wasn't all as serious as it may sound now, right. especially that she has this godmother of punk, you know. What yeah, I mean? yeah. Patty Smith sure. can be wickedly funny. Oh yeah, there's a playfulness in this record. It's not too studied. I mean, it may seem like this is a product of years of work. I mean, the the Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine line that was in her first performance with right. Lenny Kay at the church in 1971. Christ died for somebody's 
somebody's sins, but not mine. Melting in a pot of thieves, wild card up my sleeve, thick heart of stone, my sins my own, they belong to me. I am brave and engraved my own palm, sweet black X. So this stuff had sort of been worked on, but when they got in the studio, it was, there, there was a lot of spontaneity here. It wasn't like, okay, we're not really quite sure what we have, but we're going to let it happen in a very free environment. I just don't know what to do. And then we have the final track, Jim, called Elegy, which again is a f- little tribute to Jimi Hendrix. Also not one of my favorites. It's a little slow. It yeah. drags it down. Probably the uh, slowest track on the record from that standpoint. You know, I, I, not not the greatest song here, but also, uh, you know, there's moments of beauty. And, and thankfully, it's only two minutes and 57 yeah. seconds long. That's one of two songs on this album co-written with Alan Lanier. He was the guitarist for the Blue Oyster Cult. Right. What is Lanier doing here. I mean, some incredibly delicate and really tasteful guitar work. Verlaine plays on Break It Up. Lanier is on two of these songs. I think we have to look at that as part of the mix of what's going on, too. Again, people may say to me, Jim, you don't really seem to like this record. It's not a beginning-to-end brilliant record. Its brilliance lies in here are possibilities Mm -hmm. that have touchstones in rock's past that could be taken somewhere new. To me, I identify with this record very strongly because I think it, it, it is a record about a person without category, a person who is defiantly resisting categorization from the image on that cover photo to the music within is it punk well it's not really punk it's not really 60s classic rock either no. it, it's the merger of this beat literature and these literary influences with some really lowbrow rock but there's also some really elegant i mean Lee doherty's drumming on some of these tracks like there's a burst in free money where you're just going wow that's an amazing drum fill on that yeah. record richard soul's piano playing throughout this record is really Beautiful. Soul is a really talented piano player. So, so you're thinking, where does this record fit? The record doesn't fit anywhere conveniently musically. Certainly these characters that she's playing, versions of Patti Smith on these songs, are not easy to identify with. Certainly in 1975. I mean, my little suburban mind is blown <laughs> by the fact that she's messing around. With, Wait a minute, she's a boy and then she's a girl? I didn't encounter that kind of culture, that kind of discussion very much growing up. And and to hear it on a record was really eye-opening for me. But you know what's interesting, Greg? I, I never fail to talk to young bands mm-hmm. that cite Patti Smith with admiration. Right. But I don't think bands form and say, we want to sound like the Patti Smith group. Yeah. And, I don't and, hear that. And, and I, I think that's fine. I think uh, it was a kind of a one-of-a-kind thing. I don't think they meant to create sort of a template for a sound. They were a mongrel thing, and it was their own thing, and the records, no records really quite sound like this. It was very much about Patty and that 
personality, I think. As much as the band was part of it, it was about those words. It was about the way she presented those words. It yeah. was really the centerpiece. Well, and, and perhaps the personality is where we should end, because having interviewed memorably uh, three times, long interviews, twice in public, mm-hmm. okay, and you a number of times here, Patty would probably have disagreed with 75% and, well, of yeah, what we least. said <laughs> and have, have told us off in the nastiest <laughs> yeah. terms that are not accessible. To, that's one of her charms, right? right? I mean, Patty Smith has put the fear of God into me two or three times yeah. on stage in an interview. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the beauty of this record. That confidence, that defiance that's projecting from that album cover is still there. And She's it's still, still scary. Magical. And is. we mean that with love, Patty. It is. 40 years later, still scaring us. And that's a good thing. That wraps up our classic album dissection of Patti Smith's Horses, released just over 40 years ago in December 1975. But we want to turn it over to you. What impact did horses have on your life? Let us know on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Next up, we'll review the new album from rapper Pusha T. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is Pusha T from his second solo album, a track called Untouchable. Second track, Greg, on the album, King Push, Darkest Before Dawn, The Prelude. Now there's a mouthful. Pusha T was born Terrence Thornton in the Bronx, but raised along with his brother Gene in Virginia Beach, remade himself as Pusha T. His brother became Malice, and they made three albums as The Clips, really putting a unique mark on that Southern hip-hop sound beginning in the 90s, winning some very impressive fans, including Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo. But... This is a duo that had a lot of problems with the major label hip-hop system. They just didn't fit in. They had to release a lot of music on their own. It seems like now the Clips is on permanent hiatus. 
However, Pusha T has started a solo career. Around about 2011, not only is he doing well as a solo artist, he is now the president of the Good Music label. That's the label owned and started by Kanye West. Talk about uh, being on the top, then on the bottom, then on the top again. Uh, There are some really impressive collaborators on this second solo album. We have Timbaland doing some production, Kanye West, Q-Tip, Jill Scott drops by to add some backing vocals. Let's get into to the music. First, I want to note, though, Pusha T has been saying that this album, King Push, which is supposed to come sometime in 2016, is a masterpiece that's going to remake hip-hop, <laughs> you know, in the Kanye fashion. He's being none too humble about it. This album, which came out just around the holidays, is only the prelude to that. Let's play a song. We'll give our opinions. This is called Crutches, Crosses, Caskets by Pusha T on Sound Opinions. Yeah. Check me out. Crutches, crosses, caskets. Crutches, crosses, caskets. All I see is victims. My young the sick em. I don't get them. I just get back the jury if I'm fucking with them. Your man crush Mondays be owing niggas. My skin is triple black. I'm the omen. You can't kill a god like the Romans. Uh, take my time to craft. Cause I don't like back and forth with puff about rap. Crutches, crosses, caskets, crutches, crosses, caskets. All I see is victims. Rappers is victimized at an all-time high, but not I. You pop, just thought I'd let it fly. I'm Yasiel Puig. I'm in another league. I defected. Only thing we have in common is bleed. And your thousand-dollar joggers as you rhyme about your dollars. Is there shame when a platinum rapper's mother lives in squalor? Mildred's in the Bahamas for the month. She probably sitting in her pajamas, having lunch, swordfish. My reality is more fish, banana clips for all you curious Georges. Woo! Old nigga slapping young niggas. Ha! Imagine that, where you from? The crutches, crosses, caskets. Crutches, crosses, caskets. All I see is death by the masses. The only asterisk is the change of address. My infinity pool as long as magics. Yeah, I let Zillow change my pillows. The home is so inviting, the Porsche's the armadillo. The silhouette, the pop, 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 the chop, chop, chop. The throwaway text got Tourette's. Ah. That is Pusha T with a track called Crutches, Crosses, Caskets from the new album King Push, Darkest Before the Dawn, The Prelude. Jim, if this is the prelude, I can't wait to hear the uh, the real thing because, uh, you know, it's only 34 minutes of music, but it's it's pretty intense. Pusha T's voice reminds me a lot of the New York City rapper Rakim in the 80s. That authoritative voice that was so powerful just cut through you. And Pusha T's got that same quality to his voice. When he tells those street tales about drug dealing, you know, you feel like this guy's lived it, which he has, but he brings a level of detail to those rhymes that is a cut above everybody else out there in the game. He's working with those big-time producers, Jim. Timbaland, Kanye, Q-Tip, Puff Daddy. These are giant names in the business. He bends them all to his will in a lot of ways. They yeah. don't yeah. sound like you know they're making typically commercial-style uh, productions when they're working with Pusha T. It's very dark, ominous stuff. You know, Clips made its name with those songs about the drug trade on the East Coast. They weren't celebrating this lifestyle. They were bringing in all aspects of it. And the fact that a lot of these people met a very difficult end was very apparent in their music. But I think when he really hits his stride is when he takes a broader view in songs like MPA, Crutches, Crosses, Caskets, Sunshine. That's the stuff that really resonates for me. America, you need a miracle. Beyond spiritual. I need a real of you. 
I hold a mirror to it. These ain't new problems. They just always. I seen one time turn sunshine into Freddie Gray. He influenced people like Kendrick Lamar and Vince Staples, who made great records, talking about this broader view. You know, the Black Lives Matters movement was so much a part of the fabric of those records. And it's really part of the fabric of this record as well. Pusha T sort of reclaiming some of that territory as a rapper who can offer powerful social commentary with real grit of the street life. For a prequel, this is a pretty darn good record. It's a buy it for me. <laughs> you're, you're, you're in line already for yeah. the main event. You're right, Greg. When he is taking aim at Don Lemon, when he is taking aim at Donald Trump, when he's referencing Freddie Gray, uh, you know, Pusha T has important things to say, and the music is fantastic. He is a great, agile rapper. I wish he did more of the stuff we were talking about in Crutches, Crosses, Caskets. I also love that line in that song where he's, uh, you know, kind of giving guff to other rappers who let their mamas live in squalor. His mom is in the Bahamas for a month in her pajamas having lunch, right? That's a great line. What's not great is this continued glorification of cocaine dealing. He raps the last cocaine superhero. I got the cape on covering kilos, all right? He's pushing 40 years old. He's a major label executive. I don't think he's glorifying it. I'm just bored with it. I don't think he's doing nearly the sort of depth about the drug situation that uh, Kendrick Lamar uh, is or, or Vince Staples, two, two rappers you mentioned who I think had much more to say on their recent records. Half of this is absolutely by it, and the other half kind of bores me. So I guess I got to just say, ultimately, it's a try it record. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to be celebrating Valentine's Day in sound opinion style. We're going to be talking about how love stinks by playing our favorite anti-love songs. As always, Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Libby Gormley. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. You never call my name on the telephone. You never call my name on the telephone. I can see that New messages. Hi, my name is Cameron Bowie from Salt Lake City, Utah. Just listened to the uh, program with Shamir, and I am just blown away. That is one of the most amazing voices I've ever heard. The honor roll was all I'd known till you took me over to the dark side. The thrill was sky, together we stood like a monoday Bonnie and Clyde. We'll stay in the run, forget the bad things we've done. We were fit for survival, no books but the Bible, hollowed out with a gun. And I am so glad that you guys did an interview with him because he's just, he's amazing. I just I still don't even know what to think, I can't even believe it. Thanks. My wings turn black, no turning back, yeah, you have me completely. Thank you for another great night listening to Sound Opinions with your interview with Shamir. That was a fascinating interview and a great young talent. Reminds me a lot of a young up-and-comer from Milwaukee named Lex Allen. <laughs> I'm a message high, I don't do everything.
everything right. See, I'm losing a piece of myself because I'm wondering what everyone else thinks. The talent of these young folks is just amazing, and I'm, I'm grateful that you have them on your show. Thanks. Hi, my name is Mitch Harris from Rogers Park, Chicago. Wanted to comment about David Bowie's episode, which I thought was very good. Nice to hear the different opinions. I've been a longtime Bowie fan, and in particular because we share a birthday, January 8th. So I always felt sort of a kinship to him, but I didn't hear his music until my brother, who was in an excellent cover band when I was just in middle school, let me listen to them. And at a show, I heard Rebel Rebel. Something about just the attitude of the song and the sort of freak flag on parade and the style and the confidence just mesmerized me. Started listening to his records and loved it. Interestingly, I never watched him until his death recently did I start to go through YouTube and wow just a complete old performer incredible singer revolutionary sexual political person with a genius ability to transform what's within himself and allow us to see what's in ourselves so more than a chameleon a troubadour and an explorer thank you for uh, the great show This is Mac from Austin, Texas. Had to share a quick Bowie memory. I think it was 1990. I had a chance to see him on the Sound and Vision tour. He was wearing all white, beautiful, frilly clothes, and Adrian Blue was going crazy on this extended guitar solo. Bowie was walking around the stage. Someone throws an orange at him. He catches the orange in his bare hand, and he starts parading around the stage like he's holding the skull of Yorick, Hamlet, showing everybody this orange. And then after a moment's pause, into this orange skin and all and there's orange junk coming down his sleeve turning all of his clothes orange like he planned the entire thing and they threw it back out into the crowd and just that moment of, of pure theatric pure spontaneity giving it all back to the audience really just summed up what it was about thanks guys good show no more messages Share your opinions on Sound Opinions. Call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.